Once more, good morning, everybody. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. In the middle of a sermon series now entitled The Wild West of the Bible, we're talking about the book of Judges. We've been going pretty closely right through the book of Judges, but we're going to jump a bit now deeper into the story of Samson in Judges chapter 14. Again, Pastor Ron Whitlock with us this morning, so happy to have him uh, with us. His new book is called Bartimaeus. It's available on Amazon or any place where you find books. Uh, He's one of the best. God bless Pastor Ron. Judges chapter 14. Uh, in the book of Judges, I've noticed that not everybody has known all the stories we've read so far. You didn't know anything about Othniel or Ehud. Now you know more about Ehud than you ever wanted to know. Um, Samson, though, most people know something about Samson. What do you know about Samson? Long hair. If you know nothing else, you know that Samson had the most magnificent head of hair ever. And, uh, and that's key in the story of Samson. What else do you know about him? Yeah, strong, strong. Where did his strength come from? Yeah, the Lord, technically the Lord, uh, but everybody says his hair, yeah, because when he cuts his hair, what? Yeah, it's because of the promise that his parents made to the Lord early on. Samson is really an interesting character, Um, really interesting. Uh, As I've been saying, uh, as you read the book of Judges, there's this cycle that repeats, the cycle of sin and suffering, and then they cry out to God, and God raises up a judge, a rescuer, who rescues his people, puts them back in a place of God's favor and protection, and then they only forget him again, turn away again, they fall back into sin. It's a cycle of rescue and suffering and sin with with God and, and, and his people. So in Judges chapter 13, uh, 14, the Samson story begins, uh, you realize once more that God's people need a hero, God's people need a rescuer, but um, as the book of Judges moves on, everything just unravels. Uh, You know, as we said, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, according to the book of Judges, and so therefore, as you read, it just gets worse and worse and worse. The cycle gets more... um, dramatic and desperate as it moves along, and the judges themselves become uh, somewhat less than what you would hope for. (laughs) Samson definitely falls into that category. I know that as we tell a story, we often tell it like he's some sort of, you know, comic book superhero. Other judges had an army to command, but uh, Samson himself is the army, one-man army. There is no army in Israel. Everything is just simply coming apart. And so with that, Samson himself as a judge is really not any sort of hero, and you need to understand that. He's not being presented to us as an example to follow. Samson is not a particularly uh, faithful man or any sort of um, model of what it means to surrender to the Lord. Samson's not necessarily surrendered to the Lord. He is one of the most flawed men, one of the most flawed characters you'll find in, in all of the Bible. He is this uh, immature man-child who is volatile and impulsive and sexually addicted and emotionally immature. And uh, there's not really a lot to praise him for un- unless you really, really think that long hair is a big deal. Uh, Samson has many, many things that we would condemn him for, and yet God uses him. And that becomes the question, why in the world does God use a person as flawed and imperfect as Samson? And the answer to that question is just basic, just fundamental to all of our lives. God uses sinful people because why? It's the only kind of people there are. Truly, the only kind of people that there are. If God could only use the good examples, then there wouldn't be a lot of God's work that gets done. If God were waiting around for all of 
you know, the preachers to practice what they preach, and there wouldn't be any preaching. I mean, you know, I, I am flawed. None of us is perfect. And God uses Samson in, uh, in the midst of and despite all of his weaknesses because uh, uh, it's the only kind of people there are, and especially in the days of Samson. Uh, it's a desperate, desperate time. Uh, let's jump right in. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Judges 13 tells the story of Samson's birth. Um, it says, again, the Israelites said, evil in the Lord's sight, the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed him for 40 years. That's the beginning of chapter 13. And then the story of how Samson is born. It's an amazing birth story. And it makes you think that, that this next you know, judge that God raises up is going to be a, a magnificent kind of hero. Uh, and in some ways he is, but in other ways, mm, uh, this man has problems. Uh, let's talk about him. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Does he even know her name? Like, that's a real question. In this whole chapter, try to figure out if he even knows her name. Uh, His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines and find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Okay, the Hebrew there says, she looks, uh, she looks good in my eyes. Now remember, all through the book of Judges, there's that verse that keeps coming back around. Uh, everybody just did what seemed right in their own eyes. So this comes right out of Samson's mouth here. You know, get her for me. She looks good in my eyes. Uh, y- you know it, it's not going to go well, right? Y- y- you know that. Verse 4, his father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Important verse. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother about it. And when Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Does he know her name? Do we know her name yet? Later, when Samson returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. And he found that a swarm of bees had made honey in the carcass. He scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. As his father was making final arrangements for the marriage... Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for elite young men. And when the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from town to be his companions. Samson said to them, "Eh, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of the celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. So he said, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Three days later, they're still trying to figure it out. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle for us, or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Did you invite us to this party just to make us poor? So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me, you hate me, you have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. 
I didn't even give him the answer to my father or mother, Samson replied. Why should I tell you? Such a loving husband, such a good man. So she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. Then she explained the riddle to the young men. So, before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer. What is sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. See, such a man of words, such such a man of grace and words. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened. And he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. What a disaster. What a disaster. Now, as we've been saying throughout the series, there is a cycle that keeps repeating throughout the book of Judges. And I think by now you've caught on to it because I keep saying it. There is that cycle of sin and suffering. Once they have turned away from the Lord, they begin to suffer the consequences of their choices. Typically that means they become uh, uh, defeated in battle. In this case, it's the Philistines who take them over and they occupy and rule over the Israelites for 40 years. Now, again, you know the cycle. Their sin, their suffering, and then inevitably after they've suffered long enough, they cry out to God. And you come to expect that. They cry out to God, and the God answers with a judge, with a rescuer. But what you really need to see is in the Samson story, the cycle changes. It's the same story over and over and over until you get to Samson, and then something's different. So we're told in chapter 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. That's not new. They do evil. And then the Lord hands them over to the Philistines who oppress him for 40 years. There's nothing new there. That's the cycle. They're, they're now suffering the uh, consequences of their choice. But, but then there's something missing. It just goes on to talk about Samson who rises up and uh, his parents and his birth story. And then the first thing he does as an adult is go to Timnah and pick up a girl. Um, what's missing? They don't cry out. There's no outcry from God's people. They they never get to the point where they cry out to God, where they pray to God and ask for a rescuer. That's very significant. And as you read through the book of Judges, it's sort of striking that in this case, in this story, they don't cry out. And now the Philistines are living among the Israelites and dominating and ruling them. And it's gone on for 40 years. And for 40 years, they don't complain. They don't cry out. They don't fight. And it's interesting, and it's also very, very alarming for the simple reason that God's people now are just living there among the Philistines, and they're acting like that's normal. They've just simply become accustomed to that which you should never become accustomed to. They've become comfortable with something that God's people should never be comfortable with. They are in a world that is not their home, but they have made themselves completely at home among the pagan Philistines. And this is the problem. This is the problem. And this is how you must understand Samson's function as a judge. 
Because as I say, Samson isn't chosen because of his moral qualities. Samson isn't an example or for that matter even some sort of powerful preacher. God's going to use Samson, but I don't know that Samson knows that God's using him. I don't know if Samson wants to be used. I don't know much about Samson at all when it comes to his spiritual life other than the simple thing that God uses him. God's going to use him. And God's going to use him in this situation where his people, God's people, have grown completely comfortable. They have allowed something to be normal that should never be normal. Now, in my life as a pastor, I've been told that preaching can accomplish one of two functions, one of two tasks, and and I'm always doing one or the other. The first one is to comfort the disturbed. The second is to disturb the comfortable. You see that? They're opposites. To comfort the disturbed or to disturb the comfortable. Now, many, many Sundays in my ministry, I am called to comfort the disturbed. Many times God's people are tempted and tried and, and, and come into God's house weary, you know, physically weary, spiritually empty, and in need very much of the comfort that comes from the gospel. And I love that role. I love the opportunity to speak encouragement to discouraged hearts. I love the opportunity to, do, to speak strength into those who have fallen into weakness. I love the opportunity to let the Holy Spirit move among us to bring comfort to the disturbed people of God. That, that's a beautiful ministry. But the second function is just as important, although not always as pleasurable. Sometimes I'm called to disturb the comfortable. Sometimes God's people grow comfortable in a situation in which you should not be comfortable. You become at home in a world that's not your home. Do you understand what I'm saying? You begin to accept as normal life in a world that is at war with God and with all of the forces of righteousness, and you and I get caught up in that, but we forget that we're supposed to be engaged in a fight. You know, Jesus says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? But sometimes we grow very, very comfortable in the dark, no longer letting our light shine. Do you understand? And so in those moments, God sends me, God will send somebody to disturb the comfortable. God's people have to be awakened. God's people sometimes have to be pried loose out of their apathy, out of their indolence. And this is the way you have to understand Samson's role. There's a scholar in the book of Judges named Michael Wilcock, and this is what he says. He's talking about God's people in the time of Samson, but he's also talking about the church, us in the world. And this is what he says. There's no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is not conflict, it is because the world has taken over. Do you get what he's saying? As I said, what fellowship does light have with darkness? We are as light in a world that is darkness, all darkness. And so if at any time we feel like we've called a truce, it's not because we found some way to harmoniously coexist with the world. There is no harmonious coexistence. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does good have with evil? We are engaged in a battle, in a fight that will not be over until Jesus himself comes and ends it for good. You understand what I'm saying? And so we are in a perpetual conflict. We are engaged in this perpetual fight. It is why we are here. This world is not our home. This world is a place where we are called to go to work, to go to battle. You understand? 
And so this conflict is very, very important, but it's that conflict that is missing when Samson comes along. It's the conflict that is absent. God's people are absolutely comfortable with a situation that should not make them comfortable. And so God is going to use Samson to create conflict. God is going to use Samson to disturb this comfortable relationship between the Philistines and the Israelites so that God can pry the Israelites lights loose from Philistine oppression. You with me? Do you see that? So God is going to use Samson, and God is going to use Samson even though he's a bad example, even though he is a walking miracle of weakness and lust and stupidity. Samson is the one that God is going to use. I said God's going to use him despite his weakness. What do you think his weakness is? He loves him a good bottle of shampoo, I will say that. He loves, you know, hair gel, you know, he, he's the moose king, you know, with all of his hairdo, but, but that's not his weakness. What's his weakness? Y'all don't want to say? Y'all know, but you don't want to say? Um, yeah, it's women. Women are his weakness. I'm not saying that women are his problem. Samson is his own problem. But he is particularly temptable when it comes to women. And he's really not very particular about, you know, the kind of woman. He's really not very choosy. Um, So in chapter 14, Samson's very first act as an adult. I mean, we get his birth, birth story. And then the very first thing this man does as a grown man is go to Timnah, a Philistine city. Again, as I've been trying to say uh, the Philistines, during their occupation, they're just now living. They have whole towns in the middle of the people of God, and the people of God are just accepting that like it's normal. And so Samson, one Friday night, nothing else to do, decides to go down and cruise Timnah. Now, what, what, what's he going to Timnah for? What's he looking for? He just wants, he's, trying, he's cruising for chicks, y'all. I mean, he's cruising for women. He just wants a girl. But he goes to Timnah. He, he goes to Timnah. That's Philistine territory. He goes to Timnah to, to, to find a girl. And, and this is how the whole story begins. So, so let me just say this. Um, Samson's problem is, is women, but it's more complicated than that. I, I would say that technically the term for Samson's problem is, is a made-up word, and the word is cupidity. Cupidity, all right? It's a made-up word. I'm putting two words together. The first word is cupid. Who is cupid? Yeah, Cupid is that mythological little naked baby with the bow and arrow and supposedly the Roman god of love, the little naked baby god of love, right? That's Cupid. And then I'm putting the word Cupid together with the word stupidity. Yeah. Cupidity, in other words, is is my way of trying to talk about what happens when love and stupidity meet. Now, y'all looking at me like y'all don't know what I'm talking about, but I have a feeling some of you have lived most of your life right there at the intersection of love and stupidity, because a lot of us do. A a lot of us do. Now, when I say love and stupidity, I don't mean love in the way that the Bible speaks of love. I'm not really talking about real love. I'm talking about what passes for love for those who live at that place where love and stupidity meet. And it's not actually true love at all. It's, it's something else. It's probably something more related to feelings. But understand, Scripture doesn't necessarily relate love to feelings at all. Love is more a way of being in the world. Love is a way of behaving within, within relationships with other people. It's really nothing much at all to do with feelings, and yet we make it all about feelings. 
Now, truly, what you feel typically comes from what you believe. And so, for most people who call themselves believers, you would ask them what they believe about love and relationship and, and, and sex. And most of the time, believers would say that, that the Bible is the authority, that, that they believe what the Bible says about love, and they believe what the Bible says about sex and relationships. I mean, I don't meet a lot of Christians who say that they don't believe the Bible, But I do meet a lot of Christians who do not live by the Bible, who do not follow the Bible's authority on love and sex and relationships, and I find that very puzzling because, as I say, what you feel often comes out of what you believe, and so if you follow feelings and relationships that you know aren't right, then obviously it's not true love that you're pursuing, and obviously it's not really the Bible that you believe. You've come to believe something else. You come to follow some other rule in your life. And I'm talking about the place where love and stupidity meet. We're talking about cupidity. Now, in this strange intersection, you are going to come into a collision at some point with heartbreak because relationships based upon this you know, false sense of love and stupidity, they are always particularly effectively designed to break your heart. You're going eventually to end up, you know, in a place of destruction, and somehow you should understand that. Somehow by now you should have learned that lesson, but that's the problem with cupidity. You know, people who live at that intersection of love and stupidity, they don't learn very quickly. And if you don't believe me, let's just take a look at the story of Samson and his first wife. Does anybody know her name? No. I'm not sure Samson knows her name because, like I say, Samson just goes to Timnah cruising for girls. It's a Philistine town. There is not going to be a good girl in Timnah for Samson. There's not going to be a godly woman there. But Samson's not particularly looking for a godly woman. He's just looking for a pretty woman. You with me? Now, so, like every other love story, the beginning matters. The beginning matters. When I'm sitting down with a couple who's getting ready to get married, I always ask them to tell me their love story because I want to hear how this whole thing started. Because you can often learn something about where this thing is going based on where it starts. All right? So where does Samson's, you know, first marriage begin? Samson's in the wrong place, looking for the wrong thing, for the wrong reason. And you think that this is possibly going to work out well? Wrong place, wrong thing, wrong reason. Now, Samson is a man upon whom the Holy Spirit comes. So at some point in his life, or to some degree, Samson has to be capable of being led by the Spirit. Somehow Samson must be able to hear that voice or at least know what he's been taught. But Samson doesn't listen. I mean, if the Spirit is able to lead him in other ways, you would think that the Spirit would be able to bend him in the direction toward healthy relationships. But Samson's not bendable in in that way. Samson does not listen to the Spirit. Now, I would just say this, and I shouldn't even have to say this, because I'm assuming since you're in church that most of you are, are believers. But if you're a believer, I should not have to tell you this, and yet there are many, many believers who need to be told this. And it's simply, never, ever ignore the voice of God as he leads you in relationships. Don't ever ignore 
the voice of God as he's leading you in relationships. I mean, you know. You know. And sometimes you're in a relationship, you meet a girl, and you see red flags. Like, it's like the Holy Spirit standing in front of you, waving his arms and saying, dummy, dummy, no. No, but you plow right past all the red flags, the Holy Spirit trying to bend your heart. But I'm telling you, it is not your heart you're following. And so for that reason, you ignore the voice of God and you follow cupidity and you are going to end up in a place of hurt. And, and, and somehow you're never going to understand the simple way it all could have been avoided. Now, I'm not just talking to young people, but I'm certainly talking to young people any of you single, any of you who are dating, any of you at, at any stage of life who find yourself looking for a, a partner, understand, you have to listen to the voice of God. God has an opinion about your dating life. God has an opinion about the girl, the guy that you're going to end up with. God wants to lead you, but you have to follow him. Don't ever ignore the voice of God as he leads you in relationships. Never, ever should I even have to say that. But Samson doesn't pay any attention to anybody. Samson doesn't even listen to his parents. Samson says, a young Philistine woman in Timna caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Does anybody know her name? Do we know her name? I don't think we know her name. All we know is that Samson says she looks good. She looks good, man. Like you could write a country song about this girl in Timna. Do we know her name? We don't need to know her name because we know she looks good. Y'all ever done that? You ever just, you know, went out with somebody because they look good? Okay, you know this doesn't work, right? Like you can't just want somebody because they look good, y'all. I'm, 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 true story, true story. I was sitting there talking to a woman who, who hated her husband. Horrible marriage. It was horrible. And they hadn't been married this long. They've been married this long. And I said to her, why did you marry him in the first place? And you know what she told me? She told me, I thought he would look good in wedding pictures. I'm not making that up. She thought he would look good in wedding pictures. And they had an album of beautiful wedding pictures and a miserable marriage. Should you be surprised? It does not work when you fall in love with somebody because they look. Well, it worked one time for Casey. She fell in love with all of this. <laughs> I wish she was here. For, I wish, y'all go tell her in her Sunday school class what I just said. She, she will think that's really funny. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's what is inside a person. It's, you, you fall in love with a person's heart. If you're just looking on the outside, oh my, oh my goodness, you have no idea how you're going to hurt and be hurt. Samson thought she just looked good, right? And the parents say, don't do this. Don't do this. Now, let's be very clear here. Verse 3, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe? And even one woman among all the Israelites you could marry, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Now, I've heard people preach this text this way, and some of you read this text, and you're thinking right there, they didn't, they didn't want a mixed-race marriage. They're objecting to Samson's choice of women because she's, she's not of our race. Was there not a, you know, a good Israelite girl? Couldn't you find a good Jewish girl? Is there not a single woman in our tribe? You can, you know, and, and so people make this about race, and you have to understand this is not about race. There is not a single place in all of the Bible where a mixed race marriage is forbidden. 
It is not forbidden. God blesses mixed-race marriages. I know your grandparents would fall over dead, but your grandparents are not necessarily our authorities when it comes to God's design for relationships. You with me? A lot of us had some very racist grandparents who taught us wrong, and we have to unlearn these things. And so when we come to God's Word, let God's Word help you unlearn some things. It is not an issue of a mixed-race marriage. God does not condemn mixed-race marriages. They're blessed. What God condemns is a mixed-faith marriage. The issue here is that this is not a woman who knows and fears the Lord. She does not share Samson's faith. It does not matter that she doesn't share his racial identity. That's beside the point because that's an external. We're still talking about a person's heart. Does she know the Lord? Is she going to love the Lord? Is she going to help Samson follow the Lord? And I think we all know the answer to that, although we still don't know her name. So understand. As we're raising our own children, let's do better than our grandparents did. Let's do better than folks in the past. Let's make sure that our children understand that we're not talking about what's on the outside. Skin color doesn't matter. It's what matters is in the heart. Does the person you're dating, is the woman you're pursuing, does she love the Lord? If she does not love the Lord, get away from her. Turn around. This is not going to go well for you. I know, I know. Some of you think of a pastor, Tim. What if I date him and he falls in love with me and then because he loves me, he'll love Jesus? You are so dumb. (laughs) I mean, you make my head hurt. That is so dumb. It doesn't work that way. And you don't use dating as sort of a strategy for evangelism. It doesn't work that way. That, that's not how you go looking for a partner. That's not how you look for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Does she love the Lord? Understand, you must never let feelings lead you into a romantic relationship with a person who does not love God first. If God is not first in, in his heart, in her heart, then I'm telling you, you're pursuing the wrong person. You want Christ to be first in your heart, and then you want to find somebody who shares that, Christ first in his life. And when you have two people who both love Jesus first, that's going to be a recipe for a healthy relationship. Don't ever let feelings lead you into a romantic relationship with a person who doesn't love God first. How many times do I need to say that? How many times? I mean, I had a man in my office years ago who said, Pastor Tim, you know, my, my son brought a girl home. She's she not, she not like us. She's not, she not our color. I said, does she love the Lord? And the man said, what's that got to do with it? There's a low point in my ministry right there. I mean, just I'm serious. I, I, I was a church man. You know, I asked if she loves the Lord, and he didn't know what that had to do with it. Oh, my goodness. Don't, don't you ever... Go into a relationship with a person who doesn't love the Lord first. And if you think that has nothing to do with it, then your heart is more messed up than I can help you with, you know. That's what's in the heart. So this girl, I don't know her name, but boy, she's got a winner here. Um, so they make plans for the wedding. Uh, Samson is, you know, kind of, I don't know, he seems kind of energetic at times, but mostly he's just too lazy to scratch. I mean, you know, so he goes home. And piles up on the couch. He's sitting in his boxers eating Cheez-Its out of the box. And he says, hey, Daddy, I met this girl in Timnah. She looks good to me. Go get her. I want to marry her. 
Like he's just sitting on the couch barking out that order. And the dad says, no, come on. You know, she, she can't possibly be the girl for you. And Samson says, I mean, she looks good to me. I want her. And the father says, do you know her name? And Samson says, no, but I want her. You know, I'm kind of making a joke, but not really. He, he can't possibly know enough about this girl to know if he loves her. You know, that, that, that's kind of the point. Because obviously none of that has anything to do with anything for Samson. So they arranged the marriage, right? And probably that was typical in that day, but the marriage is arranged. And so uh, Samson talks to her one time, I believe, and he still kind of likes her. She's going to look good in the wedding pictures anyway. And so the wedding comes. It's a seven-day festival. That's typical. That's, that's traditional. And so Samson throws a party. You know, Typical Samson, his wedding is more a party for himself. Y'all see that? Have you ever known that guy? It's really just a party for him. Seven days, it's all about him. So he's got his guys, and you can tell that all of this is really about Samson looking like a cool dude in front of his guys, you know? There's very little time spent with the girl, and and mostly if you pay attention to this whole wedding thing, mostly what she does is cry and nag and beg. At one point she says, you don't love me, you hate me. And, And honestly, if she knows that, why in the world is she marrying this fool? You know? But, but it's just the whole story. So, so Samson's being this big man with his guys, and so he makes up this riddle when he's drunk, and, and it's like, hey, if you can solve the riddle, I'll, I'll get you 30 pairs of jeans. But now, if, if you can't answer it, you got to give me 30 pairs of jeans. They're like, deal, you know? And so they're going to try to figure out his stupid riddle, which is about the lion that he ate the honey out of its skull. I mean, it's just all stupid. It's all stupid. But it's about Samson, right? And it's about Samson being a big guy and a, and a funny guy. And it's all about Samson. This whole thing is all about him. And then every now and then his, his bride walks through and cries a little, you know, and, and nags at him. And, and that's the whole thing. Finally, you know, all the guys realize, man, we, we can't figure out this. We're going to have to buy in some jeans. And so they go to the girl and say, we're going to burn the house down. We're going to burn your house down with you in it if you don't find out the answer to this riddle. So now she goes back to Samson crying nagging, begging. She said, you don't love me. You hate me. You, you told everybody this riddle, but you won't tell me the answer. Sam says, I ain't told nobody the answer, you know. I told my parents, I don't tell anybody. So she cried whenever she was with him. <laughs> now, I'm not just talking to women here, but I am talking to women here. Why is she with him? Why is she with him? She cries whenever she's with him. Okay, I'm not really like Dr. Phil or any kind of relationship expert, but that sounds like a bad sign. You know, every time you're with him, you just want to jump out a window. Why are you marrying him? The other thing I would just say simply is the way in which Samson puts nothing into this relationship. He gives her nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I would just say, if you're involved with a person who puts no effort into the relationship, run run. Samson gives her nothing. I mean, she says, you, you don't even love me. You hate me. And he doesn't even argue with that. You know, he gives her nothing. Everything's about himself. The wedding is a party for him. It's all about Samson. He's got nothing for her. She really needs to run. This entire relationship is tailor-made to break her heart. Why does she stay with him? <laughs> Y'all, when I was dating Casey a thousand years ago, I was already on staff at this church because I've been here forever. Um, Casey and I have been married 30, going on 34 years, and this was when we were 
dating. I was music and youth guy back in the 80s. I'm, I'm 100, y'all. I've been here forever. Um, so I was in ministry, which kind of gave me this sense of superiority, you know, as a boyfriend. In other words, like if I'm late and Casey complains, I can say, don't you know I'm serving the Lord? You know what I mean? Like I'm late, like I'm an hour late, and I say, I'm serving the Lord. You know, when I leave work, people go to hell, you know? I mean, I didn't really ever say that, but that was my attitude, you know, and I, I could put her in that place. Like you can't, you can't nag or criticize me because I am serving the Lord here, you, you know? So Casey um, lived in Fort Campbell. Her dad was an army colonel. Um, and so in, in our dating years at first, um, she did all the driving. She'd come to Bowling Green because I'm in ministry, you know, and my, my, I'm so important and I can't miss a Sunday. So if you want to see me, you know, you probably need to drive to Bowling Green. So Casey did all the driving. So I remember one early day when we were dating, Casey's grandmother and mother sat her down and told her to get rid of me. I know, I know. <laughs> What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? You know, they sat her down and said, get rid of him. And they just said, Casey, don't you understand? You do all the driving. You drive to see him. He's never driven to see you. This is not a good man. Look at Casey told me that. And it really made me rethink the man I was. I guess in my head I was thinking I could be a, a bad boyfriend because I was such a good minister, you know. But then actually I began to realize if I'm a bad boyfriend, I can't be a good minister. And for that matter, 34 years later, I can't be a good minister and a bad husband. Because both of those things come out of character. I'm really lucky to have, don't, can we just all agree, I'm really lucky to have her at all. <laughs> you know, I'm really blessed to have her. Uh, moments like that were just the moments when I just had to see the truth about myself and what a jerk I was. How arrogant I was. And how this was a really good girl that I didn't want to lose, you know, so I started putting a whole lot more into it. I'm just saying, if you're involved with somebody who, who puts no effort, if you're just not worth the trouble to them, he's going to break your heart. Run. Run. So at the end of the story, verse 19, Samson, what an idiot. At the end of the story, what's it say? Samson was furious about what had happened. <laughs> Do y'all know this guy? Like, y'all, you know this guy? Like, who is he mad at? Like, exactly who? You with me? Like, he's furious about what had happened, but everything that happened was all because, like, he was in charge of all of this. Like, what happened, happened because Samson was at the wrong place looking for the wrong thing for the wrong reason. Samson went to Timnah, got himself a girl he never should have been with in the first place, demanded that he have her. Everybody in his life said, no, no, not a good idea. But Samson doesn't listen to anybody. Samson just does Samson. 
He gets the girl. He has the wedding that, that he wanted, man. He was drunk. He was in charge. He was the center of attention, man. Everybody's listening to Samson. Samson tells a riddle. Samson's got this big bet going with his guys. I mean, it's all Samson all the time. It all blows up. Samson's an idiot who doesn't know how to be a man. He doesn't know how to have a relationship with his wife. Samson's the one that tells her the riddle. All of this is on Samson. It's all Samson's fault. And at the end of the story, Samson's Furious with somebody. Exactly who is he mad at? I'm serious. Like, who's he mad at? Who's he got to be mad at? Is there anybody in this story that he can be mad at other than the fool he sees in the mirror? Y'all hear me? What's he got to be mad at? How is this anybody's fault but his own? You ever known that person? No matter what happens, man, it is somebody else's fault, and they are furious. Man, the only person you can be mad at, Samson, is a fool you see in the mirror. But for Samson to get to that place of maturity would require that he acknowledge the truth about himself. And I think that's the one thing he's not going to do, at least not for a long time. It's not just Samson. Most of us will do anything, and I mean anything, to avoid facing the truth about ourselves. That's why you stay mad at your wife. You stay mad at your husband. You stay mad at whoever you're dating. You're always mad. You're mad at the people at work. Man, your boss, you're mad at your boss because he's always holding you down. How can you succeed when your boss is holding you down? It's always somebody else with you. You ever notice that? It's your kid's fault. You know, they don't know how to behave, and on and on you go. It's always somebody else's fault. You stay mad at the world, but... Maybe your anger is just a way of you avoiding seeing the truth about your own self. I'm going to say the truth hurts. And for Samson at the end of chapter 14 to have to acknowledge that Samson is in the mess that Samson himself created, that would require a kind of truth that he's just never really going to be ready to hear. Truth hurts. Somebody hold up a mirror and you see your true face, man, you're not going to like what you see. Truth hurts, but but you know what Jesus says, right? I mean, it's true that the truth hurts, but Jesus says it's the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that will set you free. So some of us, man, we're stuck in, in life. We're stuck in the same cycle, you know, dating. And, and the thing is, like, you date one guy and you break up with him and you turn around and you find another guy just like the last fool. Like, you don't learn. You've been married four times and you go for the same alcoholic guy every time. Like, you fall for the same drunk guy and you keep marrying him and, and it's just this cycle. How are you ever going to be free from that? Well, it's like Jesus says, it's going to be the truth that sets you free, but you've got to learn to accept the truth about yourself. And the truth is you are a very flawed person. A sinful person, just like the rest of us. You do not have the love in your heart that you need in order to have healthy relationships. That love comes only from Christ. But you don't listen. And because of that, you just keep reliving the cycle. Truth hurts, but uh, Jesus says the truth will set you free. Pray with me.